0: Probably most of you guys know that we're starting a a new book tonight. So if you're here, you haven't been here in a while, you actually picked a good night to come because uh, we're starting a brand new book. For those of you who knew that we were starting Leviticus and you came anyway, you actually get extra credit. You actually get a jewel in your crown in heaven. But no, we are going to be in Leviticus, so go ahead and turn to Leviticus. And actually, um, we're not going to actually be in Chapter 1 tonight. That may sound weird, but... I want to take tonight uh, to do kind of an introduction to Leviticus and so actually um, we'll get there but just you might want to find chapter 17 verse 11 and chapter 26 or excuse me chapter 20 verse 26 so seventeen, eleven, and twenty, 26 um, we'll get to those let's pray and then we'll just kind of uh, dive into this thing. Father, thank you so much. You are a great God, and that is not a a big enough word. But we're limited by our vocabulary to sing things like that and say things like that. And God, I pray um, that one of the things you will do tonight, and throughout our study of the book of Exodus, would you become bigger in our eyes? Would we see who you are a little clearer through the lens of the scriptures? Father, that we would understand the depths of what you've done for us, and we would respond with lives that are lived for your glory. Show us Jesus. Lord, deepen our love and our walk with Jesus, we pray. We give you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the book of Leviticus, like I said, I want to do a bit of an introduction. We're going to go through some of the fun facts, nuts and bolts, big picture stuff, um, and then some things that I think will be very applicable uh, as we just kind of head into it. But before we do that, just out of curiosity, I'm curious how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but I, I, I'm, I am just curious. How many of you guys, honestly, Have read through the entire book of leviticus at some time in your life raise your hand. That's pretty good Here's another question. How many of you guys have tried? (laughs) Uh, I think leviticus has definitely been accused of being the number one through the bible reading plan killer It's the book you get to where it's just like forget about it I'm just going to skip to something good like joshua or something like that um and there's reason for that. You know, if you have read it and if you haven't, you're like, what are we talking about here? What, 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 what am I in for? It, there's just a lot of uh, interesting, um, seemingly unimportant details and regulations and stuff that you ask, well, how does this apply to us? And we're going to tackle all that stuff um, in due time. Um, I like one quote that said this. Um, Leviticus is the most neglected book of all the neglected books in the Bible. <laughs> Probably a true statement. I did come across this little fun fact, though. Uh, In my reading, I I came across this twice, two different places. I I don't really know the ins and outs of this, but at least at some time in history, at some point, Leviticus was actually the first book that a Jewish family would teach their children. So they would get them steeped in Leviticus right away. So for us, it's the last book we ever go to. Uh, For the Jewish children, at some point, it was the first book. Uh, that they would go to and I think that um, as we get into it you guys we're going to be blessed just like any book of the Bible Um, I will say this when it comes down to it yes we're going to have to have some of these weeks where we buckle down and we just say look we got to we got to get through the text and we're going to read through it and we'll pull out the applications but we're going to have to be determined in that a couple fun things just to jot down or at least just some some nuts and bolts stuff and I do encourage you to take notes even if you never look at those notes again Um, It helps you connect and really learn and and there's a method to the madness here There's a reason i'm doing the introduction instead of just verse by verse tonight I want us to have a working knowledge of the bible I want us to have a working knowledge of the book of leviticus To where you may not remember all the details, but you can say yeah. Oh, yeah This is what this book is about generally speaking and so some of these things may help you Um, The author of the book of leviticus is moses. It's the third book in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exorcist, uh, Leviathan, do the wrong, no, I'm just kidding, those are not, it's a joke, but um, it is the third book in the the Pentateuch. Um, Leviticus was written somewhere around 1446 B.C., and I was tripping out on that a little bit today, just think about what we're doing right now. We're reading scripture that's like 3,500 years old. Is that unreal? Like 3,500 years ago, if I'm doing my math, probably not right, but that God gave to Moses th- these things. It's, it's mind-blowing. Um, the name Leviticus, this is kind of interesting. Again, these are just some fun facts and nuts and bolts. The, the, the name Leviticus um, originally, evidently, in the Hebrew, um, was, would basically just be translated, and he called which doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But really what they would do a lot of times is just take like the first few words of the first sentence of the book and just name the book that, and he called. It, the idea is, is God called to Moses from the tabernacle and gave him this message. Later on, about 132 B.C., if you're interested, when the Septuagint came into play. Now the Septuagint, don't let that scare you. That word basically is uh, speaking of the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Does that make sense? So at some point, they translated the Hebrew Bible, if you would, into Greek. And by the way, in Jesus' day, that's what they would read from, the Septuagint. In Greek, Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. Somewhere in there, they assigned this book the title Leviticus. I can't pronounce it in the Greek, but we would say Leviticus, which would mean basically, and this is where we're getting a little bit more to the point, pertaining to the Levites pertaining to the levites now who was levi levi was one of the 12 tribes of israel and the unique thing about levi is that he his tribe his family group was designated for their whole lives and all the generations to be the tribe that would be in charge of the care of the tabernacle and then later the temple it's like they were the ministry tribe they didn't get to inherit land like the other tribes. They were appointed cities. They were peppered all throughout the land. And they were the ones that were, were really in charge of ministering to the Lord and to the people. And so they got to take care of the tabernacle. And that's kind of what this is. I mean, if you think about it in these terms, Leviticus is kind of a handbook for the, Le- the, the Levites. On what? And this is where it's important. Don't miss this. The worship and how to live a life pleasing to this holy God. And that's really what Leviticus is going to be dealing with, is worship of God's people. Very generally speaking, if you were to think about Genesis, Genesis, among other things, but one of the major themes of Genesis is the fall of mankind. Man's need to be redeemed from their fall. Then exodus comes into play the major theme of exodus is redemption And then you get to leviticus and the major theme of leviticus is worship. How do God's people listen? How do God's people approach a holy God? How do God's people live a life? That's pleasing to this holy God, and that's I'm already showing my hand a little bit, but that's going to be um, uh, a big a big theme in this book and um, Another little fun fact for you, Leviticus is the most Old Testament book quoted in the New Testament. Of all the books of, in the Old Testament that are quoted in the New Testament, Leviticus has over 40 references, which is, uh, says a lot in and of itself. Another fact you might want to know, the word fat is used 52 times. I just thought that was interesting. It means nothing to anybody, but... Another important little uh, kind of introductory note uh, that really will set the stage is just understanding the context um, of the book of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus is very much the sequel, uh, you know, the the second movie, if you would, of of the book of Exodus. Now think about how Exodus ended. Um, Where were the children of Israel? They're camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They've been delivered out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, Uh, They are into the sinai peninsula. They're encamped at Mount Sinai They're there for about a year before they move on and we'll get to that when we get to numbers Um, And that's exciting Um, But they're there for about a year and of course that is where Moses goes up to the mountain He receives the ten commandments of God What else does he receive on the on the top of Mount Sinai from God? The the tabernacle plans. I knew what you meant, Mitch. I'll just bail you out. You said temple, but it's tabernacle, so you're wrong. But it's, it's I'm just kidding. Good job. So the tavern, the plans are the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, without reviewing it all, because you guys were here for that, but basically a, a fancy tent that that was to be placed right at the center of the camp of God's people. Now, that's huge because think about that. It's, you know, God first appeared to the people at the top of Mount Sinai with an earthquake and fire and his bellowing voice, and they were so freaked out and scared of his presence. They basically told Moses, you go talk to God. Tell us what he said. We'll do what he said. And so what does God do? He comes off the mountain and says, I want you to build a tabernacle for what purpose? That I might be in your midst. It speaks of God wanting to be at the very center of the lives of his people. And as we talked about before, um, all of it speaks of God's, God's desire to have relationship with us. Amen? And how it was God that came down, and it was God that made the first step, and it was God who's done it all. So God is saying, I want to come and have relationship with you. And so the tabernacle is set up. And by the time we get to Leviticus, Um, The tabernacle has been, you know, all the materials have been gathered, it's been built, it's been set up, it's been dedicated. How did uh, Exodus end? With uh, the dedication of the tabernacle and the glory of God, like something of his actual, tangible, what we call the Shekinah glory of God, falls on that place where they can't even go into the tabernacle because his presence is so thick and that's where we kind of pick up the story. And what's going to happen now is God is going to call out from uh, the tabernacle and give this message of, of like, okay, here's where we go from here. Now that we have the tabernacle, now that you have a, uh, you know, a priesthood and, and a form of worship and how to approach me, this is the do's and don'ts. This is how it works. So for the children of Israel, this was a very pragmatic and important uh, book. Uh, for them, but the, the question kind of comes up and, and this is why we're doing kind of the intro tonight And I promise we're going to get to some scriptures here in a minute But the question arises and it's a good question Maybe you asked it Why though should we study the book of Leviticus? I mean isn't the Leviticus and I've heard people say this well, that's Old Testament And, and they just kind of that's Old Testament implying we live in New Testament true or not true? true and if it's old testament and it's dealing with all these very precise regulations and stipulations that were intended for the children of israel who are under the law why in the world who you know should we who have been brought into the new covenant relationship with christ and are not under the law in any way why should we even study the book of leviticus and i say to that that's a great question because that's true we are not listen if you understand the New Testament, Christian, we're not under the law, any of it. We're absolutely free from the law. We're not lawless. We are under a higher law. We have the law of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, which is a higher law than just keeping rules written on stone. Does that make sense? And so um, the question is, well, why, why should we then study? And I've got two just, these are very intuitive answers. You probably already know them, but I just, I would be remiss if I didn't say them, okay? Okay. So, number one, one of the, the major reason that we, we say, yes, we're under the New Covenant, no, we're not under the law, but yes, we need to study the book of Leviticus because the Old Testament book of Leviticus lays the foundation for most or a lot of New Testament theology. Did you guys catch that? Let me say it again. The Old Testament book of Leviticus lays the foundation for New Testament Theology it's been called the seed bed of new testament theology. It's a foundation in other words, if we don't understand the 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 regulations and the rules and the the, all the stuff that's in leviticus We're not going to understand The new testament to the degree that we can we're not going to understand the the full implications of of what jesus accomplished in his life and in his death, and in his resurrection, and his, in his ascension. Does that make sense? In fact, let me give you an example. If, if we don't really understand all the, the, the stuff of the Old Testament book of Leviticus, Leviticus when you get to books like Hebrews, you're going to be fairly lost. In Romans, you're going to be fairly I mean, I'm not saying you can't be saved. I'm not saying you can't have a good handle on stuff. But there's just no way you can fully understand Um, All the implications of what the New Testament teaches without the Old Testament foundation and basis of the book of Leviticus. So that's the major reason. And related to that point, I would add this, is that Leviticus is jam-packed full of types and pictures of Jesus Christ. It's been said, you know, that Christ is on every page of the Bible. And when you read Leviticus, you put that one to the test in, in a lot of ways. But I'm here to tell you that as we go through the offerings in chapters 1 through 7 and the priesthood and the feasts and all regulations, guys, we are going to see some of the most powerful and wonderful types and prefigures and foreshadows of Jesus Christ. It's going to blow your mind. Amen? And you can guarantee, even though we're going to kind of survey and go quickly over certain chunks of the the text, we're always going to bring it back to jesus christ and who he is and what he's done and implications of that so uh just again that's why we're studying it to get a foundation and to see jesus and now so kind of laying all that aside what i want to do for the rest of our time together is just kind of look at um a couple of the major themes i just want to do this beforehand and the reason i'm doing it is because if we're not careful we can kind of miss the forest for the trees as as it were you can get so kind of just jump into all the little details but i just want to prime the proverbial pump here and and just kind of go over some major themes that are going to be developed uh, throughout the book of leviticus i'll mention them tonight but guaranteed we're going to go over them again and again uh, to the point where you're going to just be like move on Here's the three things. Jot these down. Here's the three things I want to just kind of, again, lightly touch on. We can't exhaust it tonight. That's not my intention anyway. Three things. Number one, one of the major themes in Leviticus is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. The next two themes really flow out of that theme. The next two themes that I want to bring up actually make up an outline for the book of Leviticus. Number two is... Sacrifice the theme of sacrifice and by the way chapters 1 through 16 basically deal with that topic sacrifice So the holiness of God major theme Sacrifice another major theme taking up the first 16 chapters and then lastly separation uh, Chapters 17 through 27 I'll, I'll explain what I mean by those things but holiness of God Sacrifice Separation so let's just take a little bit Let's break those down Uh, what are we talking About first of all the holiness Of god leviticus Is dealing with How to approach And live A life that is pleasing To a holy God That's what it was For for the children of israel Well they've been redeemed out of Egypt saved If you would but how do they worship him? I mean, they have the tabernacle set up right in front of them. Like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's there, and they, they're looking at the, the, the cloud by day and the fire by night, and it's all there, and there's a priesthood set up. But, but what, what's the right way to approach a holy God, and how do we live a life that pleases him? God is a holy God. The word holy, don't get freaked out by that word, by the way, especially when we apply it to how we're supposed to live. We talk about the holiness of God. Let me just give a 30-second time out here. This is where I feel so inadequate. Um, a guy who barely graduated high school and didn't go to college and has not been gifted with the greatest IQ in the world. And, and, I, and I am just a, a very average, normal person that God loved and saved from hell. <laughs> And I'm trying to stand up here and somehow communicate the holiness of God. Uh, That's just where, as a pastor, you you just feel so just humbled. How do I do that? Clearly, I can't adequately do it, but I just want to try a little bit. The holiness of God. Even though I don't know how to exactly explain it, I'm pretty passionate about this because I feel there's a real lack in my life, in, in my estimation of how uh, the church of Jesus Christ, at least in the West, of a recognition of the holiness of God. It's really good for us to consider his, this. The word holy, in its basest form, simply just means separate or set apart. God is, listen, God is absolutely other than anything and anyone that's probably the best way i can sum up the holiness of god he's absolutely other than anything and anyone there's nothing no thing and there's no one we could ever compare God to. And if we try to do that, and if we do that, what we do is we bring God down to the level where our brains can start to understand Him. But God is so far beyond our understanding, so outside of our grasp and our knowledge, how prideful and arrogant it is for us to think that we can in any, I mean, He has revealed Himself, but we do not know who He is beyond what He's revealed about Himself, namely in the person of Jesus. God is so much Bigger, And, again, here I am searching for um, words. I, I was wrestling with this. And, um, you have to be my age or older to remember those commercials. And anybody remember the old Toyota commercials where uh, it was in the 80s, so that right there ages me a little bit. But it was when the word awesome was just, I mean, it was just the word to use. And it was like, my Toyota's totally awesome. And they just like, they kind of say it like that, like, oh They look at the camera, Awesome. <laughs> I'm going to have to go look for it on YouTube and see if it's out there. But if you were in my mind, you'd really appreciate this. Um, I just think we throw the word awesome around way too much. Because a Toyota is not awesome. God is awesome. A sunset is awesome, Right? A huge wave, you know, the waves last week at the bay were awesome from a distance as I was watching other people get pounded by them. Awesome. It's awesome to to create awe, to be awestruck, to not know what to say. Guys, there's just not enough words. Our God is awesome. He is terrible. He is eternal. God is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning because he always was. He doesn't have an end. He will always be. God is the creator. He spoke and the world leapt into existence. There was no light and he said, let there be light. And light happened because God said so. He created every beautiful thing we see on this island and he created us. We are creation of God. You know, that's loss. and uh, I'm going to get off track if I'm not careful. I'll stick to the script here. God is the creator. We are the creation. He created us out of the same elements you find in a handful of dirt. He just breathed life into it because He's the life giver. Amen. God is eternal. God is creator. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. There's nothing He can't do. He's absolutely sovereign. He's immutable. It means he cannot change. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He dwells in unapproachable light. He is the Lord of glory. And I don't know what else to say, but all this to say he is holy. He is righteous. He is awesome. One thing I love, every time you get... You know, into the uh, the Bible, and you, you, whether Old Testament or New Testament, and, and the heavens are you know are pulled back, and we get a little glimpse or scene of heaven, whether it's Ezekiel or whether it's in Revelation. You know what we see? We see the Lord on a throne, engulfed by lights and myriads and bazillions of creatures and people and saints and angels absolutely falling on their face in reverence, singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And it's not like they're on some script where they're like, what are you doing? I gotta do the holy thing, I'll be back. No, they're just in God's presence and they just fall down and then they get up and they fall down and they're just like, you are so holy. There's no other word to describe him, amen? Our God is holy. And what Leviticus does in part is it reminds us of a holy, holy, holy God. I almost feel like the children of Israel in this account had one up on us. Here's what I mean by that. I'll just get off it and go to the next couple, but I feel like they had an advantage in this respect. These children of Israel at this time in history, they actually got to experience physical manifestations of God's glory. You know what I'm talking about? They saw the Red Sea open. They saw the plagues. They came into the camp. They saw, as I mentioned earlier, the pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. They heard the booming voice of Mount Sinai. They saw the smoke going up. They had these visuals. They had these audibles. They had these ways of, there's no question in their mind of the holiness and the unapproachableness of God. Does that make sense? Whereas us in our culture, God's no less holy. But especially us in our culture a culture that has embraced you know relativism and and you know in their mind everything began and ended with God in our mind everything begins and ends with us we've lost sight that God's the creator and we have kind of dismissed that and by the way I've never seen so much of this in my life than on this island a rejection of God as the creator and then in return, worshiping the creation instead of the creator. That's the natural flow, by the way, Romans 1. That's We shouldn't be surprised by that. If a person or a culture rejects God as the ultimate and the beginning and the creator, it will inevitably... Professing themselves to be wise will become fools and we will begin to worship the creation. And I'm all for being responsible for our earth and all of those things, but it has slipped into earth worship. And it's because we've rejected the holiness and the Creator God Himself. But all that to say is these guys were very aware of the fact. In fact, that leads me to the second point because what is this book about? It's about worship of God, it's about living a life pleasing to God, but God is holy. How are they going to approach God? So they had the tabernacle, but that whole tabernacle communicated the holiness of God. But wasn't God right in their midst? Yeah, but what was, what, what was around the tabernacle? A fence <laughs> that basically said, God's holy, he's in here, but you can't come in here. Why? Because he's holy, and guess what? You're not. Which brings us to the second major theme, and that is the theme of Sacrifice. Listen, because God is holy, one does not just go into the presence of God. Do you understand that? They understood that. There ha- why, why can't we just, uh, I'm offended by that. Why can't I just go into to the pre- Because God is holy. And we, as human beings, the children of Israel, are not holy. We're sinful. We're not okay. We're defiled. And that was why there was a whole sacrificial system that God graciously introduced. Where, and, and that's what the first seven chapters are going to go through. And we're going to blitzkrieg through those things pretty quickly. But there's this whole sacrificial system where they would have to take an animal and shed its blood to atone for their sins so that they could be acceptable in God's sight. Do you know that the word blood is used... Um, 88 times in 65 verses. That's a lot of blood. Leviticus has definitely been accused of being a, it's a river of blood, you guys. This is a bloody, bloody, bloody book. And a lot of people are offended at that. How could a loving, gracious God, the creator of God, how, I don't understand how he could not only approve of, but order the slaughtering of innocent animals. Leviticus makes that very clear. It's not that God is cruel. It's not that God liked those animals being killed. But it was God's gracious way of providing a way for His people to come into His presence. Why? Because what Leviticus does is reminds us of the awfulness of our sin. And if we're going to be able to approach God... Something must be done about our sin or we cannot come in to his presence. This is where I will turn you to chapter 17, verse 11. It says this. Chapter 17, verse 11 says, For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is the second half of the verse. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. And then, if you want to jot down Hebrews nine twenty-two, a parallel passage, quoting, listen, the author of Hebrews makes it very clear: without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. And again, uh, not to harp on this, but this flies in the face of our, you know, our culture. And we say, well, I don't think that that's fair, and I don't think that that's right. That's because you have a low view of God and too high of a view of yourself. (laughs) But from God's point of view, my sin that I might brush aside, well, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. That's true, nobody's perfect. But we need to understand that any sin, all sin and every sin, is treason against a holy God and is deserving of death. And unless our sin is dealt with, there's no way, unless they had some means of covering their sin, there's no way they could get beyond that gate and and enter in and have fellowship with God. And of course, we know for us, and praise God for this, right? Aren't you glad we don't have to bring animals? Aren't you glad there's not an altar like right here? And that part of our Sunday service is like slaughtering animals. I'm I'm so glad that's not what we're a part of right now because we're under the new covenant i mean there was no doubt in the mind of the worshipers they would bring their lamb or their goat or what have you and we'll talk about this as we get to it in the text but part of the process of bringing their offering is they had to lay their hand on that animal it had to be a spotless animal no visible de- you know defects or anything like that and they would put their hand on it and what that was doing it was everybody understood what was going on um that animal was stepping in as a substitute for you and all the sins you had done that, that Animal didn't do any sin It's innocent It's a little lamb Like bang, like little cute guy <laughs> Sorry I didn't make it worse But they lay their hand on it And what's being communicated is All the stuff I've done wrong against God I'm putting on this animal And then the priest takes the sharp knife Slits the throat and it bleeds out and dies That's gross That's disgusting That's right Because that's what sin does The wages of sin is death every time. That's why it's so significant that later on, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, everybody stop and look. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus became our substitute. And I've been tripping on this today, just thinking about this, you guys. The sinner would bring the sacrifice for himself. This, the one who messed up the sinner, the one who knows he's guilty would bring the sacrifice and say, this is the stand-in for me. What does God do? The innocent one says, I'll not only provide a sacrifice, I'll be the sacrifice. And I'll step in for you, even though I'm innocent, and I'll take all of your sin upon myself, and I'll die in your place, and I'll raise from the dead. And then listen, all you gotta do is like, lay your hand on me, so to speak, and believe and receive what I've done for you. He did all the work. He is the innocent one, and we get all the benefit. It's all by grace through faith. Amen? I wanted to read a huge long chunk from Romans 10. I'll just read this. This is, excuse me, Hebrews 10. The law is a shadow of good things to come instead of the uh, the true form of these realities. It, it, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near otherwise they would have ceased from being offered he's saying look if the sacrifices would have done the job once and for all they wouldn't have to kept bringing them but they got to keep bringing them but then it goes on since the worshipers having been cleansed would have no longer have a consciousness of sin But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of their sins every year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in your book. And then it goes on in verse 14. He says, and by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected all, for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. He's our once and for all sacrifice. So, God is holy, unapproachable. But God makes a way for them to worship and come into his presence. You don't just come into the presence of a holy God unless your sin is being dealt with. That's what it was talking about for them and their time for us it's by putting our faith in jesus christ as our lord and savior that's always how we come into his presence in worship amen oh i know i gotta get to the last point but can i just say this because it rocked my world one day when somebody said this when you come to church do you know that you don't approach god on how good you've been that week anybody ever mess up and sin like on church day and they're like i can't go to church man i looked at porn I can't go to church. I, I can't go to church. I cussed out my, I can't go to church. I had this thought. I had, can't go to, ch- aren't you glad? See, think about it this. When they would bring their sacrifice, the priest would examine the offering, not the one who was bringing it. They looked at the lamb. Is the lamb spotless? You're accepted. And when we come into God's presence, God's not inspecting us. He sees, oh, the lamb is Perfect and the lamb has covered them and they're in the blood of the lamb it has nothing to do with us It has everything to do with Jesus. We are in Christ and we are accepted in his presence all the time Not because of how we've performed But because of how Jesus performed the lamb of God. Amen Okay, lastly and super quickly, but not really holiness of God sacrifice the last major theme is that of um, separation and um, that's going to be chapter 17 through 27. This is where it gets down to the nuts and bolts like, okay, do we really need a whole chapter on bodily fluids and things like that? Like, it's going to deal with every area of life and how they were supposed to live. And let me just kind of sum it up. Here's another little fun fact. The word holy is used 92 times, actually 152 times where the word holy is at least the root word. Holiness, not of God we're talking about necessarily, but God's people living a holy life. You see, I'll kind of clip some of my notes and just get to the nitty-gritty, but um, a holy God approached by sacrifice. And so his redeemed people who have been brought out of Egypt and could approach him by sacrifice and are in covenant relationship with him, he would say, now you need to live a life that is separated. Remember, holy means to be set apart. I want you to live a life that is set apart to me. Does that make sense? When, when I hear people say, like, oh, we need to live holy, like, we automatically go to, oh, sinless perfection, and I fail. It doesn't necessarily mean that. For them, what it meant was a life that is Pulled away from the old life, and the old world, Egypt for them, if you would, and now connected to God in covenant relationship to live in a way that pleases God, that's submitted completely to what God says is right and what God says is good and just completely giving every area of their life to him. Amen? This is the other verse I wanted you to look at, and it's in uh, chapter 20, verse 26. And this is just, I could have pulled three or four. I grabbed this one. There's a reason for it. It says in verse 26, chapter 20, verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have separated you from the people, listen to this phrase, that you should be mine. God wanted Israel to live a life separate from the world, holy, holy. Pleasing to Him because they were His. And they were to look like Him and act like Him and be what He wanted them to be. Amen? In other words, it would be incongruent if they were God's people, redeemed, sacrificed, loved, brought into covenant relationship, but they were living in a way that was contrary to the holiness of their God. Wouldn't that be, we'd look at that and go like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Why are, you're going back to an Egyptian lifestyle? I thought you were a child of God. Are we, amen, Right? They were to live differently, guys. I'll just jump to the to the chase here. Um, The same is true of us. We have been redeemed, bought out of the sin of Egypt, if you would. We have been brought into relationship with God. His Holy Spirit is within us, and we are to live lives holy unto God. Now, again, when you say the word holy, we get all freaked out. Um, I, I read this; it's kind of funny. Um, sometimes we equate holiness with, like, misery. Like, oh, holiness. Oh, like living for God, a.k.a. no fun. I'll give up some of the stuff, but I'll I'll pull some of the stuff back just to make sure I can have a little bit of me time. And, and there's this misconception that living holy means uh, resolving yourself to a life of misery, but at least you'll be holy. And there was this, this story that uh, Ray Steadman um, tells. And it's about this little girl. On a, she goes to a farm. She'd never seen a mule before in her life. She finds herself right across the fr- fence from a mule. And she looks at that mule and she says, well, I don't know what you are, but you must be a Christian because you look just like my grandpa. <laughs> and her grandpa was just like uptight, like, you need to live holy, you know, Sometimes when I talk, you talk about holy living in the church. You get people that are like, that's right. It's about time. We need to talk about holy living. Enough of this grace stuff. And it's like you get this, there's like an edge to it. Like, yeah, we need to balance out grace by living under some law. And that's what we think of sometimes. Holy means you've got to live by all the rules. Can I remind us that living by the law never made anybody righteous and has never made anybody holy? I mean, that's how they were doing it, but it's actually a fail. It's actually grace that allows us to live a holy life in motive and in ability. In motive, meaning when we realize the grace of God that he being God gave himself as a sacrifice for my sin, you don't have to try to convince me to want to live for God. I want to live for God. It's a response. All of our life, all the practicalities of the Christian life are never driven by obligation. They're driven by response. My old pastor, John Corsi, used to say, it's not responsibility, it's response. We're responding in love to the one who loved us. And what's ironic is a lot of people who want to see holy living want to do so by going back to the law. And guys, that will never produce anything. And this is what really blew my mind. I, haven't, I don't even think I've totally processed this. But it kind of dawned on me today that living a holy life, and what God intended was it, this life of holiness is based in relationship to God, not rule-keeping, relationship. What does he say at the end of verse 26? He's, he goes, you're going to be holy to me, I'm holy, and, and I have separated you from the people that you should be mine. That speaks of relationship that you're mine and because you're mine i want you to live in a way that is set apart from the rest of the world and by the way can i just add this as i started to say earlier living a life of holiness is not resolving your, yourself to a life of misery living a life of holiness to god may not be easy and we may have to die to ourselves at times but it is the absolute pinnacle of fulfillment joy and peace in our life, amen? When I compromise holiness in what I listen to and what I put in my body or what I watch or what I do, when I compromise holiness, there's regret. There's a feeling of distance. There's a lack of peace. It's a joy killer. Do you understand what I'm saying? But when I'm living a life that's just sur- surrendered to God and pleasing to God, that is when I find joy and peace pragmatically every single day guys this is so important to me because again so many of us think of holiness as keeping the rules this has nothing to do with rules this throws rules out the window and it gets down to this god what do you see in my life that's not pleasing to you because i think listen i think there's a lot of things in our in our lives right now that are permissible biblically speaking there's no like hard verse in there that says thou shalt not do this they're permissible, but they're not pleasing to God. Now that's between you and God. This is the point where we say, God, search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Is there anything? Not, not a, like, okay, I've checked this box. I'm holy, holy, holy. Ah, oh, this one, I don't want to know holy. No, it's just this, God, what area of my life am I not living in a way that pleases you? Not that I've got to. I want to because of what you've done for me. Amen? We do need holy living in the church. And we could take it from a negative angle and talk about all the sin and all the junk and all the compromise. And we could just pee and moan about it in the church. That's not really going to accomplish a whole lot. What's way more effective, I think, is just getting our eyes back up onto Jesus and what he's done for us because then it's a heart issue when we say, you don't have to, you don't have to convince me to live a holy life, Jason. I want to live a holy life because it's about Jesus. Amen? I'm going to read one last verse, and I'm skipping one that I really wanted to read, but I'm going to read this, and I promise I'm going to end here. A lot of talk right now because of the news about... Um, What's happening in the world and uncertainty. And if you're savvy with Bible prophecy, you see what's going on with Iran and with Russia and with the United States. And you're going, whoa, like you almost get chills. Like, wow, God, it's almost like the Bible's true or something. Stuff's lining up exactly like the Bible said it would, which means we are very close to the return of Christ. Let me read to you what, what Peter says. When he, he says um, this in Second Peter chapter 3, the context is the, actually the end of the world. I won't go too much into it right now. He says, um, since all of these things, talking about the world, are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of the Lord? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And he goes on. He's coming. How should we be acting in these last crazy days that we live? We should be living in holiness, in godliness, patiently waiting and and hastening his return, not sitting on our hands or circling the wagons, but living lives of holiness to him and going out into a world. Because he says before that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he's patient, not willing that any should perish. Do you know why the Lord doesn't come back yet? Because there's a lot of people that would perish if he did. And he's holding out, and he's holding out, and he's holding out. There's people that need to be saved, amen? I don't want him to come back and find us as a church living lives of self, self self-indulgence, self-life, and just... And what if we actually believe the Bible? And we're like, oh, the Lord's coming, and I I just want to live wholly unto Him. Just game on. All in. Amen? Let's stand together. As we stand, I'm going to ask you to just maybe close your eyes or do whatever you need to do just to create a moment before we just bolt out of here of... I'm just saying, you know, thanks for the reminder from your word that you're holy, God. Praise you for making a way for an unholy person like me to be acceptable in your eyes through Jesus. So glad it's not dependent upon me. And Lord, maybe just say, God, is there any area in my life tonight that you're putting your finger on not with guilt, not with like shame on you or anything like that, but you just say, you know, that doesn't please me. I know it's permissible, or maybe it's not permissible. What if you just tonight said, God, see if there be any wicked way in me. Repent and give it to him. Just take a moment. We don't want to play games with this, God. The stakes are too high. And you really are who you say you are. We praise you, God, for sending your son, Jesus. For saving a wretch like me, like us. Cut away the callousness of our hearts. We want to repent. and live holy lives, God. We're not perfect. We're going to mess up. But we want the trajectory of our life to be only what pleases you. Forgive us of our sins, shortcomings. Please give us the grace to walk in a way that's fully pleasing to you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.